Grosso from Vancouver to win it for Canada! Canada came! Canada conquered! Canada gold! Buchanan with the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! Canada's history-making moment delivered by their biggest superstar! A goal the country has been dreaming about for decades! Finally arrives! You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo. Alexander Gongay-Rujic and your host, Ben Steiner. Welcome back, folks, and welcome into episode 136 of the Northern Football Podcast. Ben Steiner alongside Peter Galindo and Alex Gongay-Rujic. Once again, we just keep pumping these out. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to schedule these, but every week we're still able to get these to you. Uh, but make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and follow us all on social media. But we'll jump into it right off the bat. John Herdman to TFC, certainly gaining some steam. The Athletic reported on Monday that John Herdman should be considered the front runner for the vacant TFC coaching job. Among the highlights from the Athletic article from Tom Bogert and Joshua Cloak, Herdman's representatives reached out to TFC about the job and Herdman met with TFC officials in Toronto in August to discuss the role. Multiple sources close to the men's national team said recent results and Herdman's tactical decisions have led the team to not being as unified as it was before the World Cup. Of course, we all remember the brotherhood leading into that tournament. Other names on the shortlist, Bobby Smirniotis of Forge FC, Carl Robinson, an assistant with DC United, of course, with the Vancouver Whitecaps as well for his MLS coaching tenure and Mark Warburton. So certainly a lot of stuff on the TFC front and basically that decision will or could shake up Canadian soccer. And that's, it's wild. It's just such a wild, scenario that it's come about this quickly um i mean to be fair there also sounds like there is different twists and turns in this tfc job i know for example uh you know over at one soccer we had michael singh on this week and obviously we know he's very connected with toronto fc and he was also saying the geo savarisi firing in portland this week also could you know that's someone that tfc has uh has admired so that could also be another name in the in the mix and that's you know mls experience but yeah certainly the fact that herdman is the front runner at least before that news came out uh was you know that's 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 you know shows that where tfc is looking that they want uh, a bit of a, a a culture reset and it's intriguing to see how much of it was herdman initiated in that they've gone this deep in the process you'd like to think that uh you know, there's some wheels to this, but also knowing Herdman, we're kind of sitting here looking like, is is still a negotiation ploy? At what point do, you know, does it cross between that line of, okay, Herdman's, uh, you know, negotiating something to, this is straight up happening. And I think it feels like this week, last week, it kind of felt like, okay, yeah, I bet TFC and him probably had talks, not, never went further than that. Whereas now after this latest story, it kind of feels like, okay, there's some, some legs here. Now it's going to be fascinating because it's just such a, strange time for Canada I think in particular I think for TFC this was always going to make sense they want a new manager Herdman knows you know the sport in the country knows a, a good chunk of the players I'm sure he wants to make that jump to the club level but certainly from Canada's perspective you mentioned the the reports of potential locker room tension the lack of upcoming friendly games the disputes between Herdman and the Federation it all just seems to you know quietly a storm's been brewing where uh, this move does indeed seem possible and Peter, also welcome to the podcast. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Ben. And before we jump into your questions, Alex, you had quite the moment uh, in street soccer the other day, an own goal. Just take us uh, through uh, how you're feeling from that. 
football is a beautiful sport and uh we believe strongly believe in our, our playing principles uh if sometimes you it goes against you but that's the that's the beauty of the sport is that you, you just you get you pick your head up go after it win the next few games all of a sudden it's like nothing ever happened and the you know just as long as you don't let it dwell on you and sometimes that's what uh you know that's what can happen to players they get they let themselves get defined by uh by one mistake so try not to to, to think about it too much and just think about uh, all the positive play that you can uh can glean from a from from a performance like that well uh we were playing street soccer before i headed off back to toronto where i am back now and um my team went on a, a big run and a few wins against alex and that doesn't usually happen so I uh, certainly have to mention that here on the podcast, but getting into questions from the listeners and from Danny Cunha, what are the positives for the CSA and the Canaman If Herdman leaves for TFC compensation from MLSE, save money on the next coach, a more tactically astute manager to take the team to the next level. The positives for the Canaman are, are not very clear because there probably aren't many. Look, that's uh I guess the, you know, the, the hard part of a process like this, because look, coaches get hired and fired all the time in this sport. As we know, some clubs more frequent than others, some countries more frequent than others. Uh, I mean, we see it, especially in the international game. Usually the most managers, their cycle is somewhere between one to two World Cup cycles. So Herdman's kind of in that territory where you get your first cycle. You never know for every DJ Deschamps, there's, you know, some countries that go between three to four managers before an X cycle. Um, so I'd say they on a positive side, of course, our, you know, John Herdman has been huge for taking the men's national team to where uh, it is now. And, you know, and has put it in a very good spot in, in that regard, just in terms of, uh, you know, all the off the field, the brotherhood and even on the field, the growth they've had. But also, as we've seen, sometimes a good manager can leave and you can improve. Sometimes, uh, you know, with the nature of the sport, you can stagnate, you can hit a certain level and maybe it can be tough to to preach that certain message over x amount of years and of course each situation is different so on the positive side what you could see is you know look at herdman like he when when they you know he left the women's team that was a tough departure at the time and it was one where uh the, the players were understandably frustrated a lot of the fans are frustrated and then look within a few years you're winning a gold medal and, you know that's something where if you go back in time where you're like was it good to see Herdman go? No, but sometimes that's reality of coaching. Sometimes a new voice comes in and clicks. I think on the flip side of it, there's also negatives. If you're in Canada's position in this Herdman, you know, Herdman leaves, you'd also like to be equipped to go about a coaching search of the best way to be able to go after the best names, to be able to, be able to offer the best financial package, et cetera. That's something where that's really the big concern with this move. And that limits your ability to maybe nail the hire. Cause of course, when you're, you know, the money constraints start to go out the the window, you're going to be going after a higher that's perhaps maybe a bit more unproven or, or maybe, you know, not used to this level. So look, it's, it's one of those where it's a mixed bag. And I think you, there's positives, but also negatives to look at, because again, it's like we mentioned since the beginning, losing Herdman isn't necessarily bad because, you know, again, he's had his cycle. Uh, it's something where you can replace a manager of his caliber at this level. But then it's also, is Canada equipped to do that? Are they going to take a step backwards with this hire? Is Are they able to, if there's a right person out there, are they able to afford them? Is they, Are they able to nail down that hire? And that's the bigger worry. So 
look, it, it's one of those where I'd say it, it, it's definitely in, a lot more in the mixed bag category. Like I feel like there's a lot of risks associated with it. And that's, I guess, kind of what we've been saying since uh, these links first came out. Even when the Herdman links came out uh, for New Zealand early in the year, like there's a reality where Herdman eventually leaves this Canadian men's national team if it's next week or if it's in four years. Uh, but when that happens, will Canada be ready? Certainly given how quickly this has come, it's hard to say that they are. And that's maybe where the, it, it leans a little bit more on the negative side of things. And from Dan Clark, is Herdman the right hire for TFC? I would say Savarisi would be the right hire at this point. Uh, a coach that knows MLS has tested, has had success in the league. But of course, that is very early in the process with him just being laid off by Portland earlier this week. Yeah, I'd say Herdman, it depends what TFC really wants. Because I'd say, for from what I look at TFC, what the big issue is, is definitely it feels more culture side. It feels more just the vibes it feels more a lot of that stuff because again it's like we've said throughout the year it's a talented roster yes it's one that's on the aging side and that was always something to be conservative but it is still a talented roster whereas it just again it's the vibes a team that talented shouldn't be going months without scoring you, you hear all the article the leaks the drama etc it and in that regard, that's one thing that Herdman has been undeniable at in, in international management. It's just been coming in, building a culture, building a good vibe on a team. And for, for TFC, that's certainly something they could use. And I think from that perspective alone, that, that, that you could see why the links are there for TFC. And from there, 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 will, all, there will be questions to be had tactically, no doubt. Herdman is, uh, you know, he's shown his strengths tactically. He's also shown weaknesses tactically that he'll have to answer at the club level. You could go into that debate, but I'd argue for TFC, it feels like the culture side is certainly uh, one uh, one of big importance. That, and you can, I think that's why Herdman would make a lot of sense. What I think about when I, I think about Herdman is I the first thought, and I think the first thought for a lot of Canadians is the whole sword thing and the fact that the men's national team carried around the sword and there was that brotherhood. And then I think back to one of the stories that you get from TFC in this disastrous season where Pinball Clemens comes into the group and gives them a soccer ball. And they've been carrying that soccer ball around for the whole season as like their their reminder of the, of their brotherhood or, or whatever. And all I can imagine, and I imagined it at, at the time, and I, I'm still imagining it whenever there is that, that reference, is you have... Lorenzo Insigne and Federico Bernadeschi sitting in the room and then pinball Clemens and, and as all his energy comes in and he starts shouting about teamwork and, and whatever and whatever. And then these two, two guys are just thinking about like, what the hell is going on with this random guy from the CFL? Like he means nothing to, I mean, a lot of Canadians at this point who don't necessarily resonate with the CFL. You can just imagine what he means to all these international players that, that TFC has or, or young players that never saw him play. And clearly the, the unification of that that TFC team has not worked so far this season. Uh, but from mine, Zilberstein, what's your ideal and realistic scenario for a Herdman replacement? And we went into this quite a bit on the last podcast, but Alex, I, I thought you had a, a decent idea when you, you mentioned uh, Smyrniotis could very well take that position, if not at the same time as Forge. Yeah, I think uh, the an ideal scenario is you make a gamble of a hire, right? Like you maybe go for someone who isn't as proven at the international level or, you know, something of the likes, like say a Smirniotis, he's got the experience. So he would, it's hard. He's not unproven. He's unproven at the international level, of course, uh, but he's familiar with CONCACAF and, you know, have him, his, have the familiar with the players come together, 
Um, if not, for example, if you gamble on another CPL coach, again, it's like we mentioned, you could go from, you know, Tommy Wilden Jr. to a James Merriman to a Patrice Geyser, even if you really, you know, want to go on someone. Yeah, he only has four or five months of uh, managing professionally, but you've seen the level he's brought and then you, you have him hit. And I think that's the ideal scenario. And I think realistic scenario probably falls somewhere in between that you make a hire like that. And then the, the only question is, does it pay off for you? That, that That's something we'll, we'll only see with, with, with uh, hindsight because, again, sometimes that's the risk you're always taking with, quote-unquote, unproven managers. You see that debate all the time in Europe. Sometimes some of the top managers at, a, at any given time are your Peps, your Klops, your, your Mourinho's, you know, the names that have been around the block. But also, as you see sometimes, someone like an Eglesman will burst onto the scene like he did uh, back, I want to say, at Hoffenheim. And you're like, oh, who's this guy? You know, young guy burst on the scene. You see last year with Will Still over at Haas. Well, sometimes those sort of unproven hires, someone has to make them and they have to, sometimes they pay out, sometimes they don't. And uh, so ideally you hope you do, but I think realistically they go for a hire like that and then you see what happens. And from Johnny Lohr, doesn't it seem like a mistake for Canada to be a host in 2026 for the World Cup? These vibes from being a host are cool, but it should be a time to introduce investment in the game. No new permanent infrastructure has been announced from governments like a training center or stadiums. That's a tough one. And a report came out earlier this week from the City of Toronto that contracts have been signed between the City of Toronto and FIFA. Upwards of $300 million in terms of uh, the investment going towards hosting what what could be you know b- between five and and seven games, um, but none of those are public and none of those are even accessible to the the mayors of of Toronto. So that's certainly a worrying thing from the the Toronto perspective, and it's going to be a, a similar case uh, when it comes to Vancouver as well. Um, it's extremely concerning what this means for Canadian soccer because you can look back at 2015 and look at the amount of pitches that were built across the country and how they're still being used today. And those plans don't necessarily seem there for 2026. Outside of potentially the Woodbine Stadium and the new National Training Center that was announced a few years ago and caused a lot of controversy, there really isn't anything of note that's coming in, right? And that's really one of the things that that struck me when I went away for the Gold Cup was went into the Houston Dynamo Stadium. And even though that stadium is a little over 10 years old, impeccable facility. It's a magnificent stadium. Go to Cincinnati Stadium and that completely blew Houston's out of the water. And I thought that Houston Stadium was one of the most gorgeous soccer specific sites I have seen in North America. And that was incredible. Like I can't imagine what uh, BMO Stadium in LA looks like, or I mean, just take your pick, Austin's new stadium and and the like, right? So w- when you look at some of the stadiums and the venues, just that alone that are being built in the United States, and I understand that money is there to invest in this and maybe not so much in Canada, but it kind of goes to show you the golf and quality, even quality pitches for the kids to play on. It pales in comparison to what we saw in Ohio and Texas, um, and, and that's really what the sad part is because Ben, as you said, one of the perks of getting hosting duties is you see this massive boon when it comes to just brand new improved facilities and more facilities and fields. And in a lot of cases too, you just see the grassroots explode. Look what happened to Japan when they co-hosted in 2002. Like they've been reaping the rewards ever since. And 
for Canada, it just seems like that's going by the wayside for a variety of reasons that we've gone over ad nauseum on the show. Um, but it's funny how I feel like as the months and the years are going to go by here, the more we're kind of like outside of hosting some games, is there really going to be any sort of reward for this long term? And, and the more you think about it, the more you're kind of like, I really don't know what the future holds. Whereas you could say for at least some countries, you they definitely saw some sort of an impact. The likes of South Africa maybe are still slowly catching up still and they have some you know, white elephants when it comes to just unused abandoned stadiums from the World Cup. But those tend to be the exception rather than the norm, especially these days. Yeah, and it's a good point. It's, it's a great point. And I think, for example, I think the big... The big one for me is, yeah, 2015, because I think we look back at that and, you know, it feels like a lot of what was like the 2015 left a huge impact that felt like on the people. But then if you look around at some of the infrastructure, like there was no women's league created off the back of 2015. That's a huge miss. Um, you look at some of the stadiums that were used. A lot of them aren't aren't used for soccer, if at all, right? Like you have all these stadiums that were that were used that remain unused. So that's another huge loss. Uh, you look at the fact that yeah, lack of grass stadiums were built, and now you know that's kind of felt when a professional league finally does come around on the men's side, and you know only two of the teams play on grass. Uh, you, you compare that to the U.S., where it feels like every new stadium that's coming in is grass. It's soccer specific, whereas you know in Canada we're lagging behind in that regard. <laughs> heck even it's just like I, I think at the grassroots though like this is such a random like story to think of but i think of just being here in vancouver in the summer and it's something as simple as you know you want to the impacts of a world cup is building up grassroots building up interest okay so you're in vancouver and you want to go have a kick around just like go kick the ball around and you know like that's the sort of stuff that's as simple as it is but it's vital to the you know to to building up a culture building up uh the interest of the sport in the country and you go and then all the fields, you, you go to four fields and they're all booked. And then you see a sign on one of the fields being like literally a petition to the city being like, we do not have enough soccer fields to support the interest of the game purely from like kids playing signups, yeah. organized yeah. standpoint. And then you can imagine where just casual, non-competitive, you know, that where you can, you can imagine Us. where that falls into the, in, in, exactly. Well, that's what I mean. But even then it like, I'd say us, but like, I think when I was 12, 13 and you want to go to the local park and kick around, meet people, that sort of stuff. Like you think of a 12, 13 year old now and you're like, that, that's the sort of stuff that like, cause I'm sitting here thinking like, this is Vancouver. Like, Vancouver hosted a world cup final eight Correct. years ago. You'd think that, you know, that this sorts of thing, it just wouldn't happen. And, you know, you look at other places where they've hosted a world cup final, you go around Europe where we talk about the game of South America and those are just little things. So, yeah, I think you look at 2026, you do wonder what's the impact going to be because it's, first of all, in two cities, two cities that are already already kind of taken to the game. So it's not like you're growing the game in the prairies or growing the game in the Maritimes or growing the game elsewhere. You're not really changing much. Like, yeah, you add grass to BC Place, but is it going to be permanent? Probably not. So that's a huge loss in that regard. BMO, you're going to temporarily expand the stadium. So you're not even, like, you know, permanently doing it and leaving an impact in that way. It's kind of like what's you what are you kind of getting out of this other than the interest in the game and that that part and i think that part's huge yes people are going to tune in it's going to be great it's going to be a party it's going to be fantastic but I, it almost feels like canada doesn't have that problem the interest in the sport is here it's more how can you harness it and how can you you know 
kind of transfer it to more local footy, more of that grassroots stuff. And that that's a huge issue that won't really be changed unless something changes. I mean, even when you look at where you're kicking a ball around in, in Vancouver, two of the major places for just recreational soccer and also competitive soccer are UBC and Empire Fields. And Empire Fields, of course, there, there was a plan there to to have those once the, the stadium came down in 2011. But they also redeveloped those fields and replaced some of the turfs for the Women's World Cup. And they did the same out at UBC where they added another couple turfs for the Women's World Cup. So that legacy is already there and is already paying off in those ways you described. And in terms of BC Place getting grass, I think it will be great when it get, when it gets grass for the World Cup. I'd love for that God, to stick amazing. around. Um, some positive news on that front actually was Chris May, the GM of BC Place, was on Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver. And apparently they're looking at keeping the grass in, in whatever way they possibly can. Wow. Um, and Interesting. He he did sort of. I would believe it when I see it. He did yeah. he did he, he did say that it was it was complicated and they're not in the position to do what they're doing at the Santiago Bernabeu of rolling out grass and stuff like oh that. But apparently, all of the grass for the World Cup right now is being grown in Michigan somewhere for all of the stadiums. Um, yeah, right. And they're going to bring that in, and FIFA is apparently outfitting BC Place with everything that they need to have grass in that stadium. But the concern is, can you do uh, a concert one day and a Whitecaps game the next? And, and probably not. Other venues that are publicly owned do it. Estadio Nacional in Lima, they have an entirely grass surface. They have concerts there all the time. And sure, maybe if there's a game a couple of days after a big concert, yeah, the grass isn't in the best condition, but it's still better than... 70% of, of what you see around the rest of the country. So if they can do it in Peru in a publicly owned stadium, because that, that is owned by the city and, and the country, then surely they can do it in BC. There is easily a way. It, it would just cost the money to, to do it. And the problem with having a publicly owned stadium is you're going to then be using taxpayer dollars. And do the taxpayers want their money to go towards that? Listen, completely understand why they wouldn't, especially in this day and age. But it's not one of those where they say, like, well, you know, this causes an issue and that causes... Like, just come out and say it's completely financially related and be done with it. Because we all know that's really what the obstacle is here. It's not a matter of they can't do it. It's just that, I uh, don't think we really want to do it because of the costs involved. We could go on forever about BC Plays, public stadium, grass on, on that field, but... We'll move on, and the men's national team players are condemning the CSA, the women's national team also clarifying some of the stuff that they've said as well. Shortly after we recorded our last episode, the men's national team players released a statement condemning the CSA for not scheduling September friendlies. They also alleged that the Federation has threatened to stop scheduling games and may pull out of the CONCACAF Nations League if they don't accept a lower CBA offer. The men's national team also say they've made a highly reasonable proposal to the Federation that's gone unanswered. And the question from Oz Sweeney, when are the reporters who have access to the national team players regularly going to start asking the players about negotiations with the CSA? No answers from either side and things continue to seemingly get worse. Would be nice if fans got clear answers from anyone. It's very difficult to get answers on this. Not many people have access to the national team players to speak on on such topics. Uh, that's just the, the way things tend to go. 
And I also think that both player groups, both the, with the women's side and the men's side need to be clearer in the way that they're communicating. Because when you look at any of the comments and any of the discussion around their statements and communications at this point, they're losing the support of the Canadian soccer fan. It started off as, you know, you'll side with the players because organization is always bad kind of thing. Um, I think a lot of people sort of came through that with major North American sports where it's the players versus the owners type thing. But clearly everybody's losing support at this time. And when you're bringing out clarification statements, you're just losing people every time you're putting out a statement. I don't know who's writing the statements or who's representing the men, the women. Uh, Of course, we we do know who's representing the CSA, but it's just it's difficult to see where this gets anywhere without all of them getting in, in one room and hashing this out. I think people are just exhausted by the story to be honest, and they're sick and tired of these back and forth statements about, hey, this is what we did, but they didn't do this, and they did this, but we did this. People just want a resolution, understandably so, because this has been dragging out for what is now going to be 15 plus months since it was first made public anyways, and we're no closer really to a resolution on the men's side anyways. The women obviously reached that interim agreement, but just the way that statement was worded to then kind of go out and, and not really clarify your statement or to at least pick the right words carefully, that is a massive mistake. Because if you're having to come out and then clarify what's being written in the media, well then, look, that's the legal representation's fault because you know that they're probably the ones that are helping them craft this statement or the ones crafting this statement. And you think they would know better than to potentially leave a little bit up in the air like that. So that would be the one criticism there. But the whole thing in general is just very simply fatigue. At least it is for me. I'm sure all sides are, are very frustrated and annoyed by what's going on right now. But as long as this keeps going, we're going to be no closer to any sort of resolution than we already are. Yeah. And look, to I mean, to kind of return to the crux of the question. Also, there's the fact that there have been people asking about it. It's just also the players aren't really either in a position to talk about or kind of don't want to. And it's also understandable. It's like for the World Cup, it's like, you know, Christine Sinclair said, I think she was asked on the eve of the World Cup. She's like, look, I've, I'm kind of done talking about it for now. What's been done is done. What's out there is out there. And just, you know, they kind of want to focus on the tournament. And that's also understandable because a lot of it is coming from these lawyers and it's coming on that, the offside, uh, you know, the field. And I, I think due to that, I mean, <laughs> First and foremost, I guess it's been um, harder to access those sorts of people, and maybe that's worth asking. But that's also just kind of the the reality of a situation like this. But it is also frustrating because, yeah, you, it, it agreed. It's something where you want to hear more, you want to know more. Um, but I, I think that also the fact that you kind of haven't been hearing anything speaks to how complicated of a situation uh, it, it has been and why it's going to be so important to, to, to reach a resolution because, yeah, certainly this – kind of method of broken telephone communication uh, is kind of, it feels like, you know, it's only not, it's not going to help things. And it certainly you kind of feel that every time something, something happens. And getting into our MLS recap, Toronto FC scored a goal and then they scored another, but CF Montreal managed to put three past TFC and took the three, two victory in that Derby matches one year getting a brace in that one. Meanwhile, the Vancouver Whitecaps won the XG battle quite handedly against the San Jose Earthquakes, but one shot on goal for the Earthquakes, and I think was something like 0.2 XG, uh, and the Earthquakes come away from that one, one 1-0 winners. 
Sam Adekubi and Richie Larea making their debuts with the Whitecaps. Adekubi returning to the club, of course. Uh, both looked a little bit rusty, um, but certainly settled in through their 45-minute spells. And and from Marco Telehuro, what did you guys think of Jules Anthony Vilsain against TFC? Too bad he got subbed off with an injury. And do you think Mathieu Chouinier will eventually make a move to Europe? Keep up the good work. Yeah, Vilsain was by far the spark plug for... CF Montreal in the game, at least up front. He was making all the right runs. His hold-up play was terrific. Um, You know, even just some of the runs he was making to open up the space for guys like Schwannier to run in behind, make those second-man runs, was excellent. Um, Look, technically speaking, still a little bit raw. Of course, you're going to see that. But really solid performance from him in what was a big game for the team because they had to win to go back above the playoff line. They were at their rival's stadium. And yes, Toronto FC has been absolutely abysmal. It's now, what, 10 winless for them, but it's a rivalry match. These matches tend to get pretty feisty and cagey and you never know what can happen. So for him to go out there and perform the way he did in about a half an hour was really positive. Hopefully that injury isn't too serious because he's finally put together what was a really solid stint. If he can just build on that, that would be excellent. For Schwanier. The season he's had is certainly a breakthrough season Um, because not only is he defensively active, he's a chance-creating machine. He's heavily involved in the way the team builds up. He's been doing it as a midfielder, as in a double pivot. He's been doing it as a wingback. Um, I would say that if he can have maybe one more good season or even another half season next year and moves next summer, that could probably be his chance because he'll still be young enough. He'll still be 25-ish. Um, and he did kind of peak a bit late or at least start to blossom a bit later on in his career. So there's really no rush in that regard. But based on how he's played this year, especially in two different systems as well, because you go back to last year under Wilfred Nancy, then this year under Hernan Losada, he is showing a lot of flexibility and adaptation that way. So I think that would really appeal to a lot of some European clubs that would be interested in him. Yeah, well, first and foremost, Marco, appreciate the uh, the kind words from uh, from everyone here at uh, NFP. And yeah, for Vilsain, what I liked about him is just he 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 makes things happen again. And it's the classic, like they say, he 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 percute. Like he just immediately he got on the ball and he was just running at that defenders. He was making things happen. He made Shane O'Neill's half an hour an absolute nightmare. The way he was twisting and turning and making these off ball runs and dribbles and i just like the confidence like he was going at it with both feet like shoot on your right shoot on your left uh, he's got a bit of size a bit of speed like that's just it's kind of right off the bat based on like a eye test scouting report he kind of has all of the attributes and then from there it's okay like you mentioned peter polish is definitely gonna have to come with time but sometimes for an attacker uh that you know that you can definitely see the potential is what i'd say and i think it was interesting because i'd heard a lot of it from like montreal based people like watch out for this kid watch out for this kid when he went to belgium when he came back to montreal but he hasn't really been able to show it because of injuries and all that and i think we really saw a glimpse uh, of that potential and i want to see more of it just continue to clean up your game but i think any forward who kind of brings that drive and has those attributes uh it's an interesting player to monitor and i think I'm, I'm hopefully he can keep starting up front for uh, for Montreal. Cause you look at some of the other options like Chinonto a four, like big kind of a presence, but he just he fades out of games a lot. And you know, I think you think immediately the energy Vilsain has brought off the bench and in his starts, it's been a big notice. It's been very noticeable. Kind 
kind of did it with Mason Toy, where Mason Toy really has the quality, but again, he can really fade out of matches. And there's kind of a few examples of that of options up front. Sanusi Ibrahim as well, Mr. Canadian Championship, ditto. Whereas, again, if Vilsang is going to keep starting and keep being annoying, being a nuisance, that's kind of what Montreal's needed because they, they've almost had good options between Toy, Ibrahim, and a four, but they've just kind of not offered much threat in terms of a start. And I think if Vilsang can bring that, keep starting him, and maybe that'll be the motivation the others need to kind of follow in his footsteps and, and, and go off the bench. And then as for Schwanier, I think Peter pretty much hit on uh, a lot of those points for me is an interesting case because I think based on his versatility, his age, you know, the profile, he could, he would absolutely make sense for a move to Europe. But I do wonder with this kind of new era of MLS, the way it's shifting, if a homegrown player like him is the sort of, you know, in the new, if the rules are changed, but if he's the kind of player that we might see targeted to stay at home and to kind of keep the level of the league but based on what some of the moves he might get elsewhere, kind of like we've seen with Atacubi and Larea this offseason, like we've seen with the, uh, Mark Anthony K a a few years ago, uh, Jonathan Azoria. Like it feels like MLS is pushing more and more to keep Canadian and American, you know, national team players, unless they're going to, you know, for for five plus million dollar moves or if they're going to top clubs. So I do wonder if Schwanier kind of ends up in a situation where, look, he's playing for his hometown team. Maybe he gets a nice raise and he ends up being one of these players that helps MLS improve its level uh, heading into the 2026 World Cup. And from Johnny Lower, how exciting of a prospect is Nathan Saliba for you guys? The TSN panel mentioned that all the hype for Jaquil Marshall Rudy was getting. Saliba deserves some praise too. I've been watching Montreal from the beginning of the season and he has improved tremendously. He has, and he is the perfect example of not all progress is linear, especially when you compare, and this is what everybody did, the rise of Ismail Kone to what Saliba was supposed to provide because the potential that Saliba had, according to those who knew him in Montreal, was huge. And some were saying that he was maybe even a bigger potential player than Kone was. I don't know if that was just hyperbole to to hype the kid up. I'm not so sure. Um, he played his first few games and yeah, okay, it was a little bit underwhelming, but I think understandably so. And it wasn't so much that he wasn't good. It's just that he had a lot to learn. He was maybe taking the safer option rather than taking a risk or two and risk getting burned and then having his confidence get shattered. And to his credit, he's slowly but surely grown into the role of a double pivot. Sometimes he was even playing a little bit further ahead as a little bit of added protection or later in the game when they wanted to bring him in to maybe see out a lead or whatever the case, they would have him as part of what almost looked like a box midfield at times. And I think that really helped him because now that he's been starting some games recently in that double pivot, you're starting to see the confidence grow on the ball. Defensively, it's all there. He's actually reading his cover shadows very well. He's tracking back nicely. He's reading threats before they're even there. He's wary of the transitional threats as well, which is pretty key as part of Montreal's double pivot because with how proactive they are offensively, there's going to be a lot of transitional moments the other way. you got to watch out for that, and he's done a pretty good job of that. So that's massive, especially for a 19-year-old to pick it up that quickly. It's now just improving a bit more on the ball, maybe taking a few more risks on the ball to really hone in. Because right now, because I looked at his statistical radar and even some of his underlying numbers, he's projecting like a Matu Chouanier just without the chance creation and maybe the overall box threat. So if that's the next phase of his evolution, Montreal is going to absolutely love that. Because again, going back to our last question, if they sell Chouanier, 
they have Saliba ready to go as a ready-made replacement. Yeah, Saliba has been an interesting one because we've been following him since the beginning of the season, right? He made that debut uh, was a way to, uh, wasn't it Miami, pre-Messi Miami for, for Montreal? I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, that was one of their only wins. Yeah, Um and that, that was also wasn't that poor Pantemis's injury as well. What a, how oh, long has yeah. it been since <laughs> how how long the season's been since then? But yeah, I think what you saw immediately in that debut was, and we kind of talked about it on the pod at the time, was just the you know like he'd get on the ball, he had a switch of play in him, he wants to drive forward. You kind of see the offensive skills that he brings to the table. Um, but then as you kind of saw over the next few games defensively it was kind of tough especially in the double pivot there was a lot asked of him and you know i remember one game in particular lost in a way he struggled a lot and there's a few others um but i think what it's impressed me seeing from then to now is the defensive side of things because i think that offensive side of things uh was already there but the 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 fact that you know he he's grown defensively. That's what you want to see from him. That's the importance of reps, and he just brings these things on the ball that you like. I think there's this one turn he had against Toronto in the first half, received it between the lines, completely turned his shoulder. I don't know if you remember that one, uh, Peter. Yeah, man, it was just it was, yeah. You know, <laughs> to use your term, I almost fell out of my chair when he when he when he pulled that move yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, and he just he has that quality on the ball. So if he continues to become more more and more defensively responsible. Right now, I see him as someone who could be a third option in a in a midfield trio and really thrive there. But if he keeps this up, it'll be good to see if he can continue to grow and be an option in in a double pivot for Montreal. And for mine, Zilberstein, what do you make of Richie and Sam's debut? If I'm being honest, I don't think Sam should have played. He looked very rusty and lost the ball multiple times out wide when there was no pressure coming towards him. I honestly wonder if the game situation maybe forced vanny sartini into making that change because look he kind of admitted i think just before the match that neither one of them were probably more than 30 or 35 minutes fit um and he even said like look if all things are going well or in an ideal situation maybe we'll push them to 30 35 minutes they both ended up getting 45 plus in the end just because of what the game sort of presented um look richie to start with he hasn't played in six weeks. Sam hasn't played since early June. And even before then, he hadn't started too often for Galatasaray in the final weeks of the season. So he was already kind of iffy when it came to the match fitness. Richie at least had played in MLS, then played the Gold Cup. He was a key player there for us. And then obviously was off for about six weeks before this debut. Considering he did all right. Now, were there some sloppy touches? Could that be a symptom of lack of match fitness, lack of training time, coupled with the absolutely god-awful turf at BC Place and him getting used to it? Possibly. But I thought the two or three times he got into dangerous positions, he did at least create something. That chance for Cordova was terrific. Um, There was also one, I think, earlier in the game as well where he had a really quality ball across, um, and it just kind of went blocked, I think. And then he had a shot on the right side of the box that he just shanked completely. Um, so I think considering the few times he got into those dangerous areas and showed us the classic Richie Lorea type sequences did okay, but definitely you could see that he was lacking up still a bit of match fitness, but he'll gain that in a couple weeks. Ditto for Sam. Um, I mean, he was proactive. He was really good defensively, especially in the air. Um, stopped a lot of transitional threats the other way. Touch was a bit off. Crossing was okay. So had some really quality balls into the box. He just couldn't get converted or a San Jose defender was right there 
to intervene. So really just a mixed bag for both of them in a lot of ways. And that was really down to the fact that this was their first game for at least one of them in six weeks, if not longer. Yeah, see, it's interesting because I felt of the two, funnily enough, Larea kind of looked like the one that was a bit more rusty off sync, if that makes sense. Because I think Larea got into some phenomenal pockets. Like San Jose kept tucking Trauco way inside and it left just this huge space. Like, I don't know what Trauco was doing. Like, he was kind of making up a back three in possession, but then out, out of possession. <laughs> I, I just wanted to throw that, that in. I've been asking that question for like five pretty... years, my friend with the national team. I've been asking that myself, that question for that's five years. Nice that's to be why on I... the other side of it for once, but you know. That's why I put it in there because I just knew you. You went obviously with your father uh, to proving. I could just sit, imagine there and sitting at the sort of things you've been said about Trauco and his defensive positioning. Yeah, uh, because we were just saying to Richie, like, dude, and... run at him. Just go. He's not fast. Like, he's giving you all that space. Just take it. And he only did it two or three times. But the two or three times he did, I mean, it led to some of their better sequences in the first half. So, <laughs> But yes, Trauco aside, I thought Lorea got into some great pockets. But it was a mix of... You could tell like his shooting and final ball was a bit off. Like I think some of those crosses and shots, maybe one of them turns into a goal or an assist maybe in a few weeks or earlier in the season when he was in great form. So I think that's one where, yep, fair enough. Like that one shot he shanked, like I think is objectively hilarious because you kind of you kind of feel him. Like you haven't played in six weeks, get a great shot. And it just it was it, it completely flew off target. It's like, okay, we've all been there. Uh and then but also I think you could tell. There was a bit of like just tactically or just even understanding like there are a few moments where he cut it back when maybe his teammates wanted it back post or vice versa. Yeah. That stuff's going to come with time, right? That's just understanding the teammates. And then I thought for Adekugbe, yeah, he was rusty. But also I think perhaps it was game state. Like it's 1-0, you're chasing the game. That's kind of universally, you know what to do. It's get to the byline, cross it in. And I think because of that, it suited Adekugbe just because it was like it didn't the system kind of had gone out the window at that point when he was coming on it was okay the ball would go wide you're trying to filter around you're trying to get in the box and i thought he actually had some very good delivery like i thought yeah. he was getting the ball into the good areas uh but yeah you could tell a bit rusty a bit not used to the turf a bit maybe fitness kind of caught up to him at the end so overall i'd say it was the two i was a bit surprised to see that out could be maybe looked as he did considering he was the one that had maybe played what two games in the last three to four months and I think that's positive. And I think, you know, the fact that Larea looked rusty, look, you also have to remember that it doesn't really count for much, but Adekugbe was at least making this move with the familiarity of, you know, this is a place where he uh, he comes regularly in the offseason. This is a place where he grew up uh, like a homegrown, played at the club. There's a lot less hassle with the move like that, whereas someone like Larea, you know, you're moving to the city for the first time. You're doing a lot with that. You're dealing with the new teammates, the new everything. And and I think that's something where when that goes away for Larea, which I think will be quick, he'll certainly be dangerous. And for me, with Adekubi, I'll be interested to see how long his adaptation period comes. Because sometimes we see that where your first game, you come back and all of a sudden it's the second, third, and fourth game where it can be a bit sluggish and you're really feeling your legs as you're getting up to, to fitness. So I'll be curious to see how he does in those because we know he's a very fit guy this is a guy going 90 90 90 all the time in world cup qualifying had a spore you know etc but we'll, we'll have to see how how it is to for him to get up to that fitness again i also wonder if for richie part of it was also alessandro Schoff just being very slow on the turn or to just give it to richie into that space because it seemed like at times they kind of got their signals crossed and part of it was maybe just a lack of incisiveness on Shop's part rather than Richie just maybe not getting the opportunities all the time. Because as we saw, he wasn't really playing as a wingback because off the ball, 
it would be a back four with Raposo tucking in. Laborda would be the right back. Richie would be basically a right-sided midfielder. And then it would be a 4-4-2 off the ball in possession. It was just a straight-up 3-4-1-2, 3-4-3, whatever you want to call it. And he was just given the task of finding those pockets. And at times, of course, helping cover against Cade Cowell, which is kind of ironic because that was his assignment in the second half and an extra time um, in that U.S. quarterfinal in Cincinnati. Um, But other than that, like... I do wonder if part of it was also the personnel. Because keep in mind, too, Ryan Gold comes on, plays off of Sam Atakubi, and that certainly helps his case as well. But for sure, I, I still agree that that Sam was probably the better of, of, of the two, at least when it came to their impact in the final third, probably just due to the fact that Sam, everything went through him in that second half for the most part, plus Ryan Gold, too. Plus score effects, as we always love to say in the uh, in analytics world. And getting into our CPL recap as well, Atletico Ottawa down Valor 3-1 as Valor's struggles continue. Vancouver FC picked up a win in the Salish Sea Derby, a 3-2 victory over Pacific FC, while Forge and the HFX Wanderers played to a 1-1 draw and Cavalry down York United 2-1. Still close in the CPL table, Cavalry sitting atop on 33 points after 20 matches. But right behind them, Pacific, oh, what a win could have done for them against Vancouver and one that they probably should have counted on as well, considering Vancouver all the way down in eighth place on 17 points and pretty well dead and buried at this point in the season, other than some positive play and some interesting new signings. Uh, But a question from Dan Clark. What do you guys make of the lack of moves from hashtag CanPL players this summer? Seems that there were more in the last two summers, but no one of note moved from what I can tell this year. I think some of it is just everybody's kind of in the race and a lot of teams are doing well. They have settled 11s. They have a settled pecking order. Some teams like Vancouver are still new and they're kind of figuring things out. So if they see a chance to upgrade, they'll take it. But in the case of basically everyone in that top six, and you could even argue maybe prior to their loss this weekend, you know, down to Valor, everyone was still in it and everyone had a role to play. And the coaches were pretty clear in terms of who they wanted to sign and and or who they have established. So that is likely what played a part here um, because the league is just super, super competitive this year. Yeah, well, I think I think to Dan's point, uh, I, I'd assume based on the reference, you're probably mentioning a lot of the outbound transfers. And that's a good point. Because I think last summer, what, there was Abzi, Lowell Wright, uh, Victor Latouri, Arabin Peppel. Um, William McKeough? I think, yeah, William McKeough. But I think to to the point, I think there's two factors that I've, because I kind of noticed this early in the year. I think, first of all, it's the the new, like it's the, the fact that everyone's in it, partly because of the new format, also partly because the fact that six teams are so close to each other that wouldn't have changed relative of format. So I think more teams are going for it. I think it's telling that every team except Pacific or actually even Pacific brought on a new sign. Like every team has made a signing. I think that's telling because even Forge and Pacific who are deep teams, they kind of short up areas uh, across the roster, et cetera. And I think that's because partly all stuff to remember, like next year is going to be very different. Like you win the regular season or you win the North Star Shield, you get Champions League. That's something where you're going to want to, or Champions Cup as we'll say, but you know, champions cup champions league you're going to play in continental competition next year 
there's a chance you're playing a Mexican team in the first round, an MLS team, et cetera. That's not going to be an easy matchup. You're going to want to start loading up. And, you know, I think the incentive of that spot is going to push the level of the league up just purely because we saw what it did for Forge when they made it. They loaded up and because they didn't want to get embarrassed and they showed well. And that ended up benefiting them last year in CPL action where they end up winning the title at the end of the year. So I think that's a huge part. And I think also it's something where, for for clubs like as well like they're less likely to move on for players unless it's the right move unless it's like you know you're getting a good chunk of cash etc and also i do wonder if this is maybe a bit of a sign of what we've learned from some of these moves upwards where it feels like i don't know based off maybe this is again maybe just me being selective with my memory and maybe someone you i mean peter or ben you can back me up or call me out on this based on what but it feels like a lot of the mls moves have panned out like a lot of guys going up to that you know, within MLS, for example, like in the offseason, like a Mo Farsi, uh, you look at a Joel Waterman, a Lucas McNaughton. Yeah, there's been some like Caden Chung that didn't go to plan somewhere. The jury's still out on like a Lowell Wright. But a lot of these moves have worked well. Heck, Isaiah Johnson, Krisnovich, Insar doing well over at Huntsville, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder if it might, for a lot of these players, might it make sense to wait to an offseason? You get a full offseason, you join a new club, join a preseason, and then go from there. Whereas as we saw for Europe, it's been a lot of hit or miss because for every Victor Latoury who goes in and hits his mark, you have a Willie McHugh at the same club, his brother, where it kind of ends up being choppy, you get injured, you fall out of favor and you're back in the league or an Arab and Peppel where it's just kind of been like, what level, um, you, you know, do you end up settling at? He's on loan now to the fifth tier. He went on loan last year, the fourth tier. And there's been some examples. And then you, it's also interesting that a guy like Dominic Zator moved in the winter and ended up helping him. And so so maybe for these guys, it might be something where moving in the winter might end up uh, proving to be a bit more beneficial because and to maybe to North America. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe that's just a bit of a theory. Maybe it's completely out there and I'm reaching, but maybe there's a bit of merit to it. And from David Anthony, could you see a preseason Canadian Super Cup sort of competition where the top Canadian MLS team and top Canadian CPL team play in a one-off cup match. I'd love to see it, but I would imagine that neither league really wants to do that because the CPL doesn't necessarily want to be competing with MLS a ton, and MLS probably doesn't want to bother. You know what? Now that I think about it, that could be a nice little cash injection for the CSA. Um, So they get some of the gay revenue. You host it somewhere i don't know where you how you would determine that maybe whoever the higher seat is they host it um or you just always have the cpl club hosted just because of the dollars involved to travel and um therefore they get most of the gate the mls team gets a small cup but not obviously all of it and then the csa gets some of that uh, to go their way as well it's possible the only obstacle would just be when do you play the game because the cpl season starts sort of late april third week of april right around easter basically and then MLS now starts at the end of February. So do you do it right before the CPL season? Do you do it in the middle, like in the summer when League's Cup is happening or Champions Cup is happening? Like that's that's really the problem now is that there's going to be so much fixture congestion. I don't know when you're going to play it. I would love to see it personally. It'd be kind of cool to have it, um, especially as the CPL grows and then as the MLS teams continue to improve as well. Um, and it could even ignite rivalries come, come the Canadian Championship. Like wouldn't it be kind of nice to see you know, Vancouver play Pacific, for example, or Toronto FC going up against Forge or whatever the case is. Like, I, I think it would be cool to have. It's just, I don't know when you could actually play the game. That's the big problem. 
Yeah, I think first of all, Canadian Championship is huge in this, and hopefully they continue to focus energy to growing that as much as possible. More League One teams, maybe even start bringing in amateur teams. I'll sing that one from the rooftops for a while. But look, for from this perspective, in this scenario, I mean, hey, who wouldn't who would hate a win? Maybe North Star Shield winner or the regular season winner. Take your pick. Takes whichever MLS Canadian team, if there is one, who makes the Champions Cup. Because look. We don't know what the new Champions Cup schedule is going to look like, but say it's like past years where it starts earlier, it could be beneficial for those teams because they'll both be in the competition to have a little match like this, an intense match to kind of set the table for Champions Cup competition. So uh, just saying maybe there could be a world in a reality where uh, you you frame it as something where you're like, ooh, it's this winner versus that. Uh, but then maybe you kind of actually use it as a chance to prepare your prepare the teams for Champions Cup and get the match fit, and maybe you throw a trophy on the line or and you help raise some funds while you're at it. I don't know. Maybe that that could work depending on schedules and timing of all that. And getting into our Canucks Abroad Roundup and Mailbag, the Northern Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Canucks Abroad. Find the full Canadian player pool and daily schedules for Canadians in action at canucks-abroad.ca. Some notable Canucks Abroad mentions this week include Alfonso Davies had two assists in Bayern's season opening 4-0 win over Werder Bremen last Friday, including an assist on Harry Kane's first goal for the club. Jonathan David begged his first goal of the season in Lille's 2-0 win over Nantes. He also started in their Conference League playoff first leg versus Rijeka. Tejan Buchanan scored again for Club Bruges in a 7-1 rout of Molenbeek. Charles Andreas Brim completed a brace for Sparta Rotterdam in a 2-2 draw with Feyenoord. Kamal Miller and Inter-Miami are through to the U.S. Open Cup final against the Houston Dynamo. Miller went 57 minutes against Cincinnati in the semi. Certainly another thrilling Inter-Miami game that one. Script writers continued to be up to things in MLS. Jason Russell Rowe came off the bench and scored late for the Columbus crew in their 3-0 win over Cincinnati last Sunday. Liam Miller scored twice in Basel's 8-1 win in the Swiss Cup as well. And Lucas Cavallini was sent off for Tijuana in their 1-0 loss to Shivas in Liga MX action. So certainly a bit of a harken back to his old self, Lucas Cavallini. From W Soccer CA, any word on where Deanne Rose is headed this season? She seems to be unattached at the moment. Of course, her former club Reading switching to a part-time model. I could potentially see an NWSL return, but I feel like just because of her injury, that's going to be the biggest obstacle towards her getting a European move because she just hadn't played all that much. But when she did play, she looked pretty solid. Um, and the fact that she got a basically a direct WSL move is also pretty good too for her age. Um, but maybe go back to the NWSL for a year, see what happens there, and then return to Europe. She's still young enough. That could be the way to go. Yeah, I think she stays in the WSL. I just, I think based on what she showed with Reading on a, you know, on a side that kind of struggled to, uh, you know, end up, they end up getting relegated, uh, you know, year two of, I think, of Rose being there. And even year one, this wasn't a team pushing and she still got the goals, got the assists, was involved. And I think a WSL team would be smart to, to take a flyer on her. Yeah, she's coming off the injury, but it could be a good project. And I think that's something where, I feel like if she was going to the NWSL, it would have been done already because just, you know, between the second half of the season, it's already almost September. Whereas in Europe, because of this World Cup, a lot of European seasons are kind of starting a bit later. Like first round of Champions League qualifiers doesn't even start till September for a lot of teams. So I do wonder if maybe that's allowing Rose to 
look at her options and potentially make a, a you know a move like that and at least that's where i'd hope she ends up we'll see but if not i could see the nwsl shout i just i don't know i'd struggle to see a timeline where it fits into this season with the nwsl already resuming and kind of beginning their push to the playoffs and getting into your other questions as well we've had a few questions asking us to sort of form these 11s and of course we've done We've done BC, we've done Ontario, and today we're jumping into what's probably the most stacked one, jumping into Quebec uh, and a 4-3-3 formation. We have Bunu in net, along with Farsi, Krifa Yao, Moise Bombito, and Edine Abzi, Sam Piet and Mathieu Chouanier making up the midfield alongside Ishmael Kone, although he's born in the Ivory Coast, so we did tweak the rules a little bit there. Sean Rea, Rubens Macias, and Jean-Anil Assi also cracking our 11. On the bench, Sirois, Jeffard, Bassong, Jeremy Gagnon, Lapare, Chris Navikinsa, Abubakar Sizoko, although born in Mali, Jules Anthony Vilsaint, Wesley Timoteo, Christian Gutierrez, and Maxime Crepo. So certainly quite a stacked team, that is. It is. And I feel like, look, we're changing the rules midway through this. I don't like it. I don't like changing the rules midway through this. You can't have. Yeah, this feels very MLSy. If Inter Miami can flout the rules. No, Bunu was born in Montreal. Then. Yeah, uh, Bunu's not the issue here. Two Ivorians in the 11. All right. That's just the way it goes. Just call me Don Garber. All right. It's the 11th province, (laughs) Ivory Coast. Maybe we'll have to tweak these rules and do it again. All I'm saying, if there's interest in it, maybe we build out some of these 11s. Maybe you do a BC, Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, and then maybe rest of the provinces. Throw them in EAFC, do a tournament, see who wins on simulation. Maybe that could be a fun uh, fun activity to do if there's enough interest out there. But hey, maybe that's a future pro- NFP project. And another one of the questions from Nicholas Friend. Canada Red, Canada White, and Canada Black starting 11s. Red being an MLS-only squad, White being a CPL-only squad, and Black with players that play in the rest of the world. First of all, fascinating question, uh, Nicholas. Um, appreciate the uh, the idea. And yeah, I mean, basically for this, what I uh, what I ended up doing in terms of an idea, and of course is applied by uh, Peter and Ben with their picks, but I, I, I picked... A best 11 for each is of course and then i based it on a 352 i think that made most sense you were pretending it's canada say they need a camp they for whatever reason it's they have a restriction where they need to pick one of each that was kind of the idea and then for fun in the cpl one this one there's maybe a bit more debate i picked kind of like a best cpl where it's kind of like you know the, the, you look across the league you're picking 11 of the best canadians and then i picked one where Maybe it's like a U23 camp or something like that. We were picking a bit guys with more potential, plus Ryan Yesley, because uh, there's not that many young goalkeepers around and uh, kind of more of a potential-based team. So this this was, that was kind of my thinking with some of these teams. And so jumping into our Canada Red, our MLS-only 11, Dane St. Clair in net, Richie Lorea, Joel Waterman, Lucas McNaughton, Kamal Miller, and Sam Adekubi along the defensive side, Jonathan Azario and Samuel Piet alongside Matthew Schwanier, Ali Ahmed, and Jacob Schaffelberg, cracking that roster alongside Jason Russell-Rowe. In terms of our best CPL side, Ryan Yesley, Caden Chung, Amir Didich, Mandrakar James, Dan Nimick, Matteo Debreen, Sean Young, Kyle Becker, Manny Apriccio, Ali Musi, and Taryn Campbell. And a potential CPL side could have been 
Ran Yesley, Jean-Anil Assi, Eric Kobza, Daniel Nimick, Wesley Timoteo, Matteo de Brienne, Gabe Antonoro, Alessandro Hijabapur, Kwasi Poku, Wubens Pasillas, wow. and Tiago Coimbra. And our European, our Black Rest of World 11, being Milan Borian, Tejan Buchanan, Alistair Johnston, Stephen Vittoria, Derek Cornelius, Alfonso Davies, Ishmael Kone, Stephen Estacchio, Jonathan David, Kyle Laren, and E.K. Ugbo. Certainly an interesting question to uh, approach to end this podcast. I love how you kind of went for the um, ambidextrous kind of three four three slash three four one two there, yep. Alex. That was very. That was very. I was struggling for a that. third midfielder. <laughs> was like, Johnny David. So I pretend Jonathan it's David's fine. a ten. He's a ten. <laughs> love it. Let's go. Yeah, so certainly a fun exercise uh, to dive into. Honestly, I had the most fun making the CPL eleven because I think the European one kind of wrote itself. I mean, you got. The regulars like your Buchanan, the Davies, David, Laren, you know, Kone, Ustakio. You kind of fill in based on need for the rest of them. The MLS one actually is well pretty straightforward, especially. I mean, it helps that Larray and Adekugbi are now part of the MLS team because a few months ago they could have, or, you know, depending on the timing, they could have been in the European 11. Some inter- interesting center back options. Really, the hard one was up front and kind of in midfield because. There's a lot of choices in midfield, not so much up front. So I kind of went more 5-4-1 on the MLS 11. Uh, I I added the caveat that you can kind of slot in Russell Rowe for one of the midfielders if you want to go for the authentic 5-3-2. But the CPL was was fun. And I think the real, yeah, you could probably have some fun with some of those like potential teams, right? Like I'm just imagining like a back three of Kobza, Nimic, and Timoteo, just what they'd be able to give you in possession, um, you have Debrienne and Assi just flying down the flanks. Love you know, that. the creativity of Antonoro and Poku on one side of Hojabapur, Passius and Coimbra just being nuisances up front. Would be fun to do. And maybe maybe we'll have to build out some more potential hypo- like CPL 11. So if you have any ideas for fun CPL 11s we can do where, heck, if it's only guys over six foot, only guys less than six foot, only this, only that, whatever. And, and it's, it's certainly I'd also love to maybe we'll have to do this Quebec. in the future shows. Especially with the, uh, the you know the Olympic qualifiers coming up for the women, we we'll definitely have to do some uh, best women uh, eleven as well, based on potentially the province themes uh, and a few others. So I think there's some uh, some fun ideas there, but appreciate the question. And that's all we've got for episode 136 of the Northern Football Podcast. Certainly a bit of everything in this one, but we'll be back next week for, of course, more of Canadian soccer and maybe to discuss. John Herdman being officially hired as head coach of TFC. It could be, but that's all we've got for you this week. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And for Peter Galindo and Alex Gunkiruzic, I've been Ben Steiner. Thanks so much for listening. 